have a number of things in my life that are characterized as phobias. On a somewhat serious level, I'm afraid of heights, needles, and tight places. And I'm not the only one, which is, is somewhat comforting to me. Uh, fear of heights or acrophobia is experienced by up to 5% of the population, I'm told. Uh, so if we go up on the top of the World Financial Center in Shanghai, which is a beautiful building, uh, 101 stories up, they actually have a, an observation platform that has a glass floor. So you can stand on it, not that I would be caught dead up there, but you can stand on it and look 500 meters straight down to the street below. If I were to go up there, I would pin myself to the wall next to the elevator, and, and I'm so weird that I cannot even look at you standing on the glass. I would have to shut my eyes and plead with you to come back to sanity. Fear of needles, usually just called needle phobia, I have in common with more people. 10% of Americans, I'm told. Uh, we had a fun one with this during chemotherapy. Uh, occasionally, the nurses who would uh, be helping me uh, would think that I'm joking when I would tell them that they could either lay me down before they approach me with a needle, or they're going to have to physically catch me when I fall. My wife was there. She would help assure them that I'm not joking because I've passed out cold more times than I can count. Fear of tight places, claustrophobia, something that 5 to 10% of the population struggles with. For, for some people, elevators or rooms without windows can trigger it. For me, it's if we're hiking and there's a cave, I can't go in a cave, or MRI machines, those tubes that are also torture chambers that they put you into to do a scan. Uh, I always try to explain to the technician that I, I may panic when I go in. Last year, uh, I, I told this to the technician. Um, he, he fought a moment and went into the next room and, and brought back a, a young male nurse, a strapping fellow. And uh, he told me that, that this man would hold my hand if necessary while I'm in the MRI. He would stand out the, the other side and I could just reach up and take this man's hand. Uh, I looked back and forth between the two of them and said, nah, I'm, I'm good. Well, I lasted all of four to five seconds in the machine before my hand shot out, grabbed his hand, and we held hands for at least 25 minutes, which made things awkward every time I returned to that hospital and see that man. Now, I've spent some time trying to get better at dealing with my fears. Uh, prayer helps. Thinking about the truth helps. I've done some reading, so if you get online, WebMD will uh, give you some breathing techniques, some visualization strategies. I'm still working on it. But something stands out to me as I have done some reading, especially the different lists of phobias that Americans struggle with. Um, mine are all on the list, along with things like public speaking and fear of flying, fear of spiders, those sorts of things. But as you read over those lists, you always see one of the top ones is fear of death and dying. And when I read those lists, I'm reminded of that old Sesame Street song, one of these things is not like the others. My phobias are all irrational, right? 
Uh, It's hard for me to admit, but I know they are. Neither the nurse with the needle or the MRI technician or the person who designed the the beautiful observation platform of the World Financial Center uh, is bad for me. None of them are bad for me. They don't have it out for me. I don't need to fear them, ultimately. That's what makes my fears irrational. But the fear of death and dying seems like something else, doesn't it? I don't mean to say that it's not real as a phobia or or that someone couldn't be overly obsessed and paralyzed by fear of death to the point that they couldn't go on living. I don't minimize phobias since I have so many of them. What I mean is that there is something very real and very right about a fear of death. If anything, I would say that we don't spend nearly enough time as a society thinking about death. We've done so much over the past 100 years to to remove death from view. It happens in hospitals or in nursing homes or in hospice facilities. But facing death should profoundly influence the way that you and I live, right? At least it should prioritize for us the question of what comes after death before and above everything else. I mean, if J.K. Rowling is right, as she has Albus Dumbledore say in her book, to the well-organized mind, death is just the next great adventure, maybe we need just to get our mind more organized. Or if Woody Allen is right, and we don't need to be scared of death, we just don't want to be there when it happens. (laughs) But if the Bible is right... We can't be so flippant. Death is on the scene from the first pages of Genesis when God says, on the day you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. All the way to the last pages of Revelation that speak of the lake of fire, which is the second death. And the new heavens and new earth as a place where death is no more. Sin, which is what causes death, is the great problem of the Bible's storyline. And the grace of God that can replace it with eternal life is the great solution that it offers. Well, I want to look at a text this morning that addresses the fear of death head on. Interestingly, it's an excellent text for us to be studying at Christmas time because it connects the incarnation of Jesus with being set free from the fear of death. So turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 17 as you turn there in your physical Bible or scroll there on a mobile device. Uh, the, The book of Hebrews is a book about endurance in the Christian life. It was written to Christians who had come out of Judaism, but in the midst of persecution, they were considering turning back to their old way of life. The author, we don't know who for sure it is, tries to give these Christians endurance by showing them how superior Jesus is to everything you find in the Old Testament. Superior to the angels and to Moses and the high priest and the temple and the whole Old Covenant, which could not finally and fully do away with sin. It could not cleanse us from a guilty conscience. It could not allow us to run with endurance the race that is set before us. 
And chapter 2, what we're dropping in here, is an extended meditation on the fact that Jesus, in order to save us, had to become like us. And our text will have us meditate on that. Jesus, in order to save us, had to become like us. It's my prayer that this meditation will set you free this morning from whatever you're afraid of. Let's read it. Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 17. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus, in order to save us, had to become like us. Let's take those in reverse order. My my first point will be, be Jesus became like us. Jesus became like us. And number two, in order to save us. In order to save us. So number one, Jesus became like us. In this passage, we're thinking about the incarnation, a fancy word for Christmas. You could go to the first chapters of Matthew or Luke to read the Christmas story. But in the rest of the New Testament, you find places like this, where the writers are reflecting on what was happening when a baby is conceived in the womb of this young woman named Mary who has never been with a man. Notice that twice here in our passage, in verse 14 and verse 17, we get a description of what's happening there, of the incarnation. So first, look at verse 14 there. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. The word children here refers to the people that God has saved. The author's been talking about Jesus as the the author of salvation, who intended through his life and death to bring many children into God's family, to adopt them. Now, to be clear, all human beings are created by him, but until we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus, we are outside of his family, not inside. These children he intends to adopt to save. Well, they have flesh and blood. They have physical bodies, and they are mortal. They can die. We're told that Jesus partook of these same things. Now notice, Jesus exists before he takes on flesh and blood, right? Before he's an embryo in Mary's womb, he has eternal existence as God. The writer wants us to be so clear about this point. He he began his whole book that way. Uh, Turn turn a page just back to chapter 1 of Hebrews and look look at verse 3. It says, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. God, in this verse, refers to God the Father. Uh, We're brought here into the mystery of the Trinity in which God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit are all one God, but exist eternally in three distinct persons. 
And I say mystery because the three in oneness of God is not fully comprehensible to us. But there's a helpful picture here uh, for us, I think, when it says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. The metaphor seems to be the sun and the sun's rays, which are of one essence and yet inseparable. In the fourth century of the church, there was great challenges being brought to this idea of the Trinity. People were arising and said that we're, you're reading the Bible wrong to say that God is three in one. A man named Athanasius uses this very verse, among others, to show that they were wrong not to believe in a triune God. Listen to what he wrote. The sun's rays belong really to it, and yet the sun's substance is not divided or lessened. The sun's substance is whole, and its rays are perfect and whole. These rays do not lessen the substance of the light, but are a true offspring from it. Likewise, we understand that the Son, S-O-N, Jesus, is begotten not from outside the Father, but from the Father himself. The Father remains whole, while the stamp of his substance, that's from our verse here, the exact imprint of his nature, is eternal and preserves the Father's likeness and unchanging nature. So Jesus, from eternity past, is God. But back to our verse in chapter 2, it says that he takes on flesh and blood. He becomes man. He adds a human nature to his divine nature. He becomes uniquely the God-man. And then look down at verse 17, because we get another phrase that helps us unpack this from a different angle. Verse 17 of chapter 2, he writes, Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. We'll come back to that, he had to. But we notice great care is being taken here to make sure we understand that he became a real human. A human in every respect. This is because the author knows that our minds are going to rebel against the idea of the divine becoming human. I mean, think for a minute, how could that be? God is omnipresent. He's everywhere present. Human beings are are located in one place at a time. God is omniscient. He knows all things. Human beings start off as as babies. We, We only know how to to cry and to eat and to mess our diapers. As we grow, we, the, the, the smartest human being on planet Earth knows a tiny fraction of all things. We could go on, but most significantly, the immortal can't at the same time be mortal. The immortal, by definition, can't die, but we're told here that none of these things holds true when it comes to Jesus. Somehow... This divine and human nature exists uniquely together in him, in the person of Jesus. We should stop and and note here that in church history, there are so many heresies that came about right in thinking about this. So many false beliefs on essential matters. That's what a heresy is, a false belief on an essential matter. And they all come about because people are trying to apply human reason to this mystery. Some said that Jesus only seemed human. He acted human, but he wasn't really human. Others said he he takes on a human body, but but his mind was not human. 
Others went back and rebelled against the idea of the Trinity altogether and said that that either Jesus is a created being, that's what Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses believe, or that the Father, Son, and the Spirit are, are just God wearing different hats at different times. Before we planted our first church in Shanghai, we were attending a, an English-speaking church, and one of the elders there was a oneness Pentecostal. Uh, he did not believe in the Trinity, just thought that God was appearing sometimes as, as the Father, and sometimes as the Son, and sometimes as the Spirit. And sadly, that church didn't even realize that th- that belief is a heresy, a false belief on an essential matter. We had to leave that church. Well, the early church father, Gregory of Nazianzus, challenges those who say Jesus didn't really have a human mind by saying this. For that which Jesus has not assumed or taken on, he has not healed. That which he has not assumed, he has not healed. But that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. If only half Adam fell, then that which Christ assumes and saves may be half also. But if the whole of his nature fell, it must be united to the whole nature of him that was begotten and so be saved as a whole. Now, I don't think you need to become overly concerned with understanding all of the different heresies in church history as long as you pay attention to the text right here. He has told us Jesus is the eternal God. He takes on flesh and blood, which makes him at the same time really human. And he's like us in every respect. Now the author of Hebrews is going to make one caveat to that later in chapter 4. Where he says we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Because he's human. But he was tempted in every way just as we are. Because he's human. Yet without sin. Jesus is different than you and me in that he never sinned. That's essential for him to be our substitute. But other than his sinlessness, Jesus in his human nature is made just like us. So I want to make sure that we grab on with two hands to the humanity of Jesus. He was born in a messy, human sort of way like us. As Andrew Peterson, the songwriter, would put it, it was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. You could hear a woman cry in the alleyways at night in the streets of David's town. Jesus grew up in a normal sort of way. Are you a child here this morning? Being a child's not easy. Adults are constantly misunderstanding you. You often don't understand yourself. Other kids are often unkind to you. They don't understand you. Jesus, he does understand you. He went through all those things. Are you a teenager here this morning? Jesus knows all about the awkwardness of changing from a child to an adult. Some people treat you like a kid when you're not a kid. Other times, people treat you as if you should be an adult already and have unreasonable expectations of you. You feel caught in the middle. Jesus understands that too. Are you an adult managing, working a job to provide? Jesus worked, as best we can tell, into his early 30s. He knows about the blood, sweat, and tears of work. He understands human pain, whatever the first century equivalent of hitting your thumb with a hammer. He he understands that. 
the highs and lows of human relationships. He lived that. Deep friendships. Deep betrayals. He was misunderstood. He was rejected. He knows all about that. Do you feel alone this morning? Jesus can understand. Jesus became one of us. Sometimes I think in a good eagerness to try to wrap our minds around the theology of the incarnation. To understand the hypostatic union as theologians call it. The two natures of Christ. We could be in very real danger of missing the plain fact that Jesus can sympathize with what's going on in our lives right now. As I mentioned, this wonderful book of Hebrews is written to people in danger of drifting away from their faith. They're under the the pressure of life and, and the pressure of suffering, and they begin to look for comfort in other places. Maybe you can relate to that this morning. Well, his strategy here is to present to them a Savior who came near to them. Jesus' humanity is a coming near. It's a walking in our shoes that should draw you in and remind you of God's love for you. He's not some far-off boss throwing commandments and requirements at you without really caring about you at all. Maybe you ought to stop and just spend some time thinking about that today and journaling some of your struggles and asking the Lord to help you understand that he understands you. So this is the first thing that our text presses us to believe. Jesus became a man. He became a human. He is God come near to us. But let's consider secondly, he did that in order to save us. Point two, in order to save us. We need to answer the question here, why? Why did Jesus step out of heavenly glory? Why did he take to himself this mortal, limiting, inglorious human nature? Our text gives us one purpose with three results. The one purpose is given there in verse 14 in a little phrase, that through death. Do you see that there in verse 14? That through death, he might do some things. Stated most simply, Jesus became a man in order to die. Without death, we couldn't have the benefits, the results of his death. And those are listed here as three. Number one, he destroyed our greatest enemy. The second half of verse 14 there. Through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. The devil is described here as having the power of death. Someone might point out that ultimately God is the one that's got the power of life and death. Satan is a fallen angel of considerable power. But his main ability is in lies and deception. The the Bible calls him the father of lies and the deceiver of the world. He has the power of death in that God has said, the soul that sins shall die. And from the beginning, he's been deceiving human beings that God hasn't said what he has said. And that we don't need to obey God anyway. And that good things will come of our disobedience. Like like life and fulfillment. Happiness. So he has the power of death in that he keeps deceiving people to walk in the paths of death. Well, Jesus' death destroys the devil. Because at the cross, Jesus shines through as the way and the truth and the life. The sinner looks and and realizes that 
his or her sin is indeed bad. So bad that it required the death of the Son of God to pay for it. At the same time, he or she realizes that God's mercy is indeed that great to extend forgiveness to us so that the path to eternal life is open wide if only we'll believe in him and trust him. When that message is proclaimed and believed, the power of our greatest enemy is destroyed. I think there's great application for us here. Remember that Satan is real and that he is the deceiver. So don't be surprised when he's trying to deceive you. But then realize that Satan has no power over you as long as you're listening to the truth. You know, he's described in the New Testament as a, as a roaring lion prowling around looking for someone to devour. But we need to realize that he's a lion on a leash or a lion in a cage. So don't get in the cage with him. Learn to recognize the voice of the devil. When you fail, when you commit some sin, do you hear a voice that tells you you are beyond help? Do you hear a voice that says that God is disappointed with you? That's the devil. The gospel says you're never beyond help. And if you're united by faith to Jesus, God is never disappointed with you. He's satisfied with his son. And if you're united to his son, he's satisfied with you in Christ. On the other side of that, do you you hear a voice saying to you that pursuing holiness and growing in your faith is too hard? It's too exhausting. It's not worth it. That's also the devil. If he can't crush your spirit, he'd love to stunt your growth. Do you hear a voice saying that your life isn't turning out the way it's supposed to? That you're not significant? That you're all alone? All of those voices are the voice of the devil. He's a liar. Don't listen to him. Do you hear a voice saying that you couldn't be used in other people's lives to encourage and strengthen and disciple them? That as a Christian, you you shouldn't share your faith with others because you're so messed up yourself? All of those things are the voice of the devil. His power has been smashed by the death of Christ. And his lies are defeated by the truth of God's word. So Jesus became a man, first of all, to defeat our greatest enemy. But let's consider, secondly, he became a man to deliver us from our greatest fear. He delivered us from our greatest fear. Look at verse 15. It says, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Notice that he calls the fear of death that human beings live under a lifelong slavery. We immediately know what he means, right? Death is not something that we like to think about. We we would happily go through our day not thinking about it at all. But it's nonetheless an ever-present fear, isn't it? Things that bring it to the surface very quickly are many in our lives. I'm not just thinking about the the near miss on the beltway or your doctor saying he'd like to talk to you about your recent test results. I'm thinking about the fact that an incredible amount of our human effort and activity is spent trying to insulate us from death, trying to build a hedge of protection around ourselves through 
our education, education for our children, and trying to earn enough money to have food and shelter and health care. Well, when the writer here talks about the slavery of the fear of death, uh, he isn't talking about the natural and good fear that keeps people back from the edge of a cliff. He's thinking about the fact that toddlers are terrifying to their parents because they don't have a right fear of electrical outlets and streets and drop-offs. That's not what he's talking about. No, here he means the kind of fear that keeps you from doing the things you know you should be doing. The kind of risks you have to be able to take to witness for Jesus. Or when doing the ethical thing at work could be a career-limiting move. Or when you say, I'm going to go ahead and gather on the Lord's Day with God's people when I might get the coronavirus. When you're controlled by the fear of death, it's a miserable experience. But Jesus' death delivers us from the fear of death. John Owen's famous book is called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. And it celebrates the fact that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, puts death to death. Or the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. What he means is that you can't really kill a Christian. You can only translate them from this life to the life to come. We are united to Jesus, who destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So our key application here is not to live in the fear of death. You and I need to cultivate an active anticipation of crossing that river and finding your footing on the other side. Do you remember that scene from Pilgrim's Progress where Christian is at the river death? And he, he begins to wade through the water and he, he begins to despair thinking that the, the waters are going to come over his head and he's not going to be able to make it. And his, his friend Hopeful is encouraging him all the way, saying, keep going. At that beautiful moment, he, he finds his footing on the other side of the river and looks up and can see the heavenly city off in the distance. Well, beloved, that will be our experience. When we walk through the river of death, whenever that is, on the other side, we will experience the joy of being in the presence of the Lord. After all, that's what Hebrews says. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We can say with Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because Jesus has delivered us from our greatest fear. But our passage tells us he's done a third thing. And that's that he meets our greatest need. He meets our greatest need. Looking there at verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. As we follow his logic here, Jesus had to become like us in order to give us the help that we needed. Why is that? Well, the high priest in Israel was the one that would enter the tabernacle or the temple into the holy place, the presence of God, and he would take with him the blood of a, a sacrificed animal, and he would sprinkle it there before God to make atonement. And as he's doing that, he, as the high priest, is representing the people. 
He, he had to be one of them in order to be the representative of them before God. God would accept his offering on their behalf. Well, we're told here that Jesus had to be fully human like us in order for him to be this kind of a representative high priest for us. So we've got to have this human high priest to represent us, but then it's interesting with Jesus that he's both the priest and the offering, right? That, that's why it describes him here as merciful. He's offering himself, his own blood for our sins. He's not offering it for himself because he has no sins that need atonement. So he's a merciful high priest. We're also told that he's a faithful high priest. Says that because he carries out all the priestly work that the Father sent him to accomplish. When we see him there in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, not my will, but yours be done. We're seeing his commitment to carry out all of that priestly work. So he's a merciful and a faithful high priest. But most significantly, what did his death do? It made propitiation for the people. That word there means atoning sacrifice, a sacrifice which atones for sin. And we can think about it as, as a coin with two sides. On the one side, it means our sins are washed away. We no longer have any sins to pay for. But on the other side of the coin, it means that God's wrath against sin and sinners is fully satisfied. The, the just God who cannot let the guilty go unpunished can look at the sinner because of union with Christ and say, because she is united to my son Jesus, who paid for her sins, I'm satisfied with her. In Paul's language, God can be both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you believe that this morning? Maybe you're here and you've never understood and believed this before. I hope you can see this morning, this is the best news you could ever hear. Though you are a sinful person that deserves death and separation from God in hell, God has been merciful and gracious in providing a way of salvation for you. You know, our culture may have forgotten much of the meaning of Christmas, but this is what it means. God became a man in order to die, so that if you'll turn from your sins, which is called repentance, and if you'll trust in Jesus, then you will receive the gift of eternal life. Why not do that this morning? I'd love to talk to you more about that. If you have questions, you can talk to Pastor Mike or maybe somebody around you in the pews. Don't leave this morning without talking to somebody about what it would look like to turn away from your sins and to trust in Christ. Well, beloved, let's take stock of what we have here in our text. Jesus became a man in order to save us. Jesus came to die to destroy our greatest enemy, the devil, deliver us from our greatest fear, the fear of death, and to meet our greatest need, propitiation for our sins. What does that mean for you and I as we go into this Christmas season? Well, for one, it should give us an incredible sense of thankfulness and joy as we think about God's love for us. He didn't do this because we were lovable 
or because we could do anything for him as if he needed anything. He did it simply because in eternity past, he set his love on people who would repent of their sins and trust in him. People like us. I think there's another application here for us. Thinking about these truths should give us a sense of calling to move towards other people. I mean, if Jesus stepped out of the comfort of heaven to come down and clothe himself with mortal flesh, a condescension of incredible magnitude, then there should be no distance between us and our neighbor that we're unwilling to cross. So let me ask you, who can you reach out to this Christmas? Who can you reach out to with friendship? Christmas is a great time to ask, how can I build friendships with those around me with the same sort of humility and compassion that Jesus had? That may begin just with some intentional conversations with someone who lives in your neighborhood or someone who works around you. I've heard it said that if you ever met a truly humble person, you wouldn't think of them as humble you would just walk away thinking that they were totally interested in you. Well, well, who could you show that kind of humility to this Christmas? That's what we should be focusing on. Not just Jesus' incarnation, but our incarnation into the lives of those around us who need Christ. Finally, I think our text calls us to connect Christmas with Easter in a way that drives out fear. I don't know what phobias you have. I hope you don't have as many as I do. But I know we all have fears. Well, when it comes to death, you and I should hear the message from God's word, fear not. When it comes to viruses, we should hear the message from God, fear not. When it comes to the future, we should hear the message, fear not. He came to set free all those who through fear of death had been subject to lifelong slavery. How was it that the angels put it to the shepherds that night outside of Bethlehem? Fear not, for I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For today in the city of David has been born to you a Savior. He's Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, you've been so good to us. There's nothing that we have needed that you have not provided. Most of all, the gift of your Son. And so we pray this morning that you would fill us with faith and also with thankfulness and joy. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.